beloved in the Lord. The temptations of Christ in the wilderness can puzzle us and make us wonder what exactly is going on. The worship of Satan makes sense as a temptation, but why the bits about the bread and why the bits about throwing oneself down the Temple Mount? Even the temptation to worship Satan, it seems, it seems strange that there is no subtlety or deception in that temptation. Now, these temptations, they can't really be understood until we understand them in light of Christ's mission. Christ has come to fulfill all righteousness. He has come to succeed where Israel has failed. He comes to succeed where Adam failed. Satan wants Jesus to prove his sonship in one way, through turning stones into bread or through throwing himself down at the Temple Mount. But Christ knows that he can only prove that he is the Son of God through obedience. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, Jesus proves that he is the Son of God through resisting the temptations of Satan. First, we're going to see bread. Second, we're going to see power. Third, we're going to see trust. Bread, power, and trust. First, bread. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. We need to have two things in the background of our minds here. First, Israel. Jesus has just been baptized, and now he goes into the wilderness. He reflects Israel as she goes to the Red Sea and from the Red Sea into the wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel is without bread and is to learn to rely on God. And so Jesus, too, is to rely on God. He is to complete the fast that Israel could not. We've also just been reminded of Adam in the last chapter. Jesus' genealogy goes right back to Adam, who is called the Son of God. We're invited to compare his record to the Son of God that is being written about in these pages. Through the fullness of the Spirit, Jesus is called to live out a parable before Israel. He takes on the tempting that Adam received. He takes on the wilderness wanderings of Israel. He takes on the 40-day fast of Moses as he prayed for Israel. He shows in his flesh the willingness to fulfill all righteousness. When he's at his hungriest, when his human flesh is at his weakest, the devil comes to him. The devil seems to have some understanding of what Jesus' purpose is here in the desert. He piles on the greatest temptations at the end of 40 days. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. 
And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what would be harmful about turning a stone into bread? Later in Jesus' ministry, he actually does multiply bread. Why is he allowed to accomplish that miracle then, but not now? We need to understand this in light of Jesus' mission as the new Israel and as the new Adam, as the true Son of God. The wilderness offers an interesting contrast to Adam's situation. Instead of a wilderness, Adam is in a garden. He has plenty all around him. He's allowed to eat of every tree of the garden except for one. And he chooses to eat of that forbidden tree. He eats forbidden fruit with far less provocation than Jesus Christ. According to many theologians, that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil may well have eventually been given to Adam. After all, Solomon, through his humble request, is given the knowledge of good and evil. First, Adam had to go through a period of testing as the Son of God. He had to grow into the maturity that would be received through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did not have to do this in a way that brought discomfort, for he had freedom to eat of all the trees that were around him. And even after Adam fell, God still desired that end for the human race. We could read about that in a psalm like Psalm 8. He wanted man to move from glory to glory. He wanted man to be in the image of God and to grow in the image of God, ever moving toward the desire of God and taking the, on the rule of God in the role of steward and prince of God. Because of the road that Adam took, the road to God became one of suffering. But it is a suffering that our sinful flesh cannot bear. You see, when our sinful flesh is brought into suffering, it always turns to sin. We always turn to sin when we come to our wilderness. Christ had to enter the wilderness, and he had to bear the full suffering of the wilderness for our sake. He had to show that he really did rely on God more than he relied on bread. Satan asked Jesus to prove he was the Son of God by turning a stone into bread. Jesus proves he is the Son of God by accepting the suffering that God has called him to. Man shall not live by bread alone. When God brings Israel in the wilderness, the first thing Israel thinks about is bread. She complains, I want bread. She doesn't understand the need to have God as her bread, to live by every mouth, or every breath from the mouth of God. It's the same when we're brought into trials and tribulations. We quickly begin to complain rather than relying on God. But Jesus has gone before us so that we may receive the strength to rely on him more than bread, more than money, more than health. Jesus is the bread of God, 
so that we have the strength for whatever trial God calls us to. And that brings us to our next point, power. Satan isn't ready to give up. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Ultimately, Satan said the same as he tempted Eve. Eat of the fruit, and you will be like God. Here, Satan offers Jesus an opportunity to be like God. There's a twist. Satan speaks what is unspoken in his temptation to Eve. Worship me, and it will be all yours. Eve was deceived. She followed the word of Satan and found that she was enslaved to Satan. The Bible never tells us that Adam was deceived. The suggestion is that his sin was far more high-handed. Even if he didn't fully understood, he understood that to follow Satan's words was to enslave himself to Satan. He seized what God had not given The words that God speaks over the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 reflect the position of Adam. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. Adam's heart was full of pride As in eating the fruit, he sought to grasp the position of God. But this pride was not found in Jesus. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Nothing is clearer in the Scriptures than this. We owe allegiance to God first of all. We serve him before anyone else. This sort of temptation in our lives is not necessarily as blatant as the one Jesus experiences. Perhaps Satan already senses Jesus' commitment to his task in in the first temptation, so he's direct rather than seeking to deceive. For us, the temptation can often come in little bits and pieces. Give up this word of Scripture. Give up that service of God. The way is more comfortable if you forget about that truth. Our hearts are full of idolatry, and they will cause us to stray if we do not stay fixed on following the whole Word of God and submitting ourselves to Him before we submit to any man. Ultimately, this temptation to serve Satan is behind all temptations that we receive. There's more to Jesus' temptation here than meets the eye, though. Jesus knows the promises of God. 
Jesus has said to him, I will make the nations your footstool. That's a promise to Jesus. Jesus knows that his inheritance is the kingdoms of the earth. He knows that that is the final promise of God if he is faithful before him, if he fulfills what Adam failed. He also knows that the way to that kingdom is suffering. He has to defeat Satan through death on the cross. He has to defeat the power of sinful flesh through dying on the cross. He already has a sense of the excruciating pain that he will experience on that cross. The only way to the crown is through the cross. Satan's temptation is to avoid the cross. Avoid the suffering and the wrath of God that you were called to and serve me. This was again the temptation of Israel. She didn't want to deal with the commands of God, and so she was continually tempted by the woman and the religion of the Canaanites. We can think of our sin at Baal Peor, where many Israelites worshipped the Baals of the nations and connected themselves with Canaanite women. Christ wins where Israel fails. Jesus Christ, our Lord, promises to strengthen us as we follow in His path. The Scriptures make clear that the Christian life contains a lot of suffering. We have our cross to bear in terms of bearing the consequences of our Christian faith. We also have all the same diseases and death that have always been with the human race from the beginning, even if they're alleviated by medical innovation. We have conflict and political disturbance we can be grateful for the most part that none of us have seen war, which, which has been a more regular part of human life than, than we often think. So the Scriptures tell us that we will go through suffering and we will suffer for our beliefs to some extent. And it's important not to be naive about this suffering. I think a lot of the North American church is somewhat naive about the suffering Christians have experienced or may experience. We're naive about the true depths of depravity as it manifests itself in our fellow man. It makes it easy to think that we should continue to have it good. But if we desire that God triumph through the church, we also need to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's also always a temptation to avoid the suffering through those little concessions that the world desires of us, to allow some part of us to call what is evil good. But we don't have to go forward alone. We have a Lord who has borne our weaknesses, who was tempted to put aside his mission just as we are, and he is a Lord who at the same time continually offers forgiveness as our weak flesh fails to approach our mission with the courage and the fortitude that he did. So let us hold our eyes firmly on Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. And so, says Paul in Romans 5, we may rejoice 
in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That brings us to our third point, trust. The devil needs to try once more. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What a wonderful promise of God. What's the temptation here? The temptation is to question God's actual care of you. And this is at the heart of Adam and Eve before the tree of good and evil as well. When they ate of the tree, they were telling God that it was unfair, that he wasn't good in putting this tree off limits. In their own minds, they deserved God's grace. Even more clearly, we see this sin in Israel. Israel asked in the wilderness, Has God brought us into the wilderness to die? We question God's love for us when he has so clearly shown his love to us again and again. This doesn't mean we can't ask this as an honest question. Why are you doing this? What is going on? But if we run with the idea that God doesn't care about us, God hates that. On the other side, if we throw ourselves into harm's way in order to test him, God hates that as well. There were men in the Old Testament who needed reassurance that God loved them. Gideon comes to mind, who put out a sheepskin and asked God to give him a sign when called to be a judge to save Israel from the Amalekites. God is gracious with Gideon and assures him of his constant love and devotion toward Israel and to all who have faith in him. Also, if we presume on God's goodness, acting carelessly without acting according to his word, we again demonstrate an unwillingness to act according to God's character. Various characters throughout history have used the promises of God to shirk responsibility, to break promises, acting out of presumption on God's mercies. Like Gideon, God can, of course, use that as he uses all things for his glory. But the greater path is found in those who believe and do not see. Jesus will have none of it. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The proof that he is the Son of God is not ultimately his miracles or the amazing signs that he accomplishes in his life. The greatest sign in Jesus' life is his complete trust in God, his Father, his obedience even to death on a cross. What about you? You too are a son of God. 
I'm sure this last year has had many of us ready to test the Lord, whether He still loves His church, whether He still loves us. And I'm here to assure you that He does. So long as you will still manifest the faith that He calls you to, however weak it is, He loves you. He is so patient with us. We see it in all the stories of the saints of the Old and New Testament. None of them had the measure of faith of Christ as when He was tempted by Satan. When we are faithless, He is faithful. The whole life of Christ is a lesson in that truth. You can be assured because of the wondrous work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The promises that Satan quotes are an assurance from God so that you do not test him, but rather trust that wherever he may lead you, he will take care of you to the end. This can even help us understand why Jesus is so subtle and careful in announcing his role as the Messiah, why he's careful to encourage those he heals to stay quiet about their healing. He seeks to honor the timing of his Father for the cross. Through the Spirit, he knows, he knows that he must confront the authorities of his own day, so that they will accomplish the work of sacrificing the Son of God for the sake of the world. He does not carelessly and in a foolhardy way test the timing of His Father. Christ fulfilled all righteousness and so proved that He was the Son of God. Satan wanted Him to prove it by other means. In Him, you have the bread of life, you have the power of the gospel, and you have a faithful friend who, through the Spirit, will keep you faithful to the end. And you have the Spirit of God by which you cry, Abba, Father, you are sons of God, and God is working so that you too may fulfill all righteousness. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing together from Psalm 80, verses 4, 5, and 6. Mm -hmm. 